Lord God, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. I did see um, a YouTube video um, about a year or two ago of a Catholic priest who used one of those, and they called segues, where you go up and down the, the aisle. I thought I'd maybe use one today, but he actually got fired by the bishop, so I decided against it. Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. This is the holy remnant right here. It's always been one of my favorite services of the church here is Christmas Day morning. For all the festivities and the, the hoopla and the beautiful music and the, the just the, we, you know, the 67 services we had last night. <laughs> and now things calm down a little bit and we're able to just try to allow those words, these holy words of hope to sink in. Now, it happens that I know the words of John's prologue a little bit too well, because during my years in seminary, I was tortured by a class, otherwise known as New Testament Greek. And my study for New Testament Greek was the first five chapters of John's gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but words sinking in to this thick skull when it comes to foreign languages is a great and profound challenge. I dreaded Greek class every single week. The walk to Greek class was wonderful. Made a short walk um, past King's College, Cambridge, and it just so happened that as I was going to Greek class, the choristers from King's School were on their way to King's College Chapel to rehearse for the Eve for Evensong. And they'd be there in their, their coattails, even their little top hats, a little waddle of penguins making their way. They were moving towards a heavenly place, and I was moving in the other direction. <laughs> Whatever I tried, I could never get past chapter 10 of Wenham's New Testament Greek. I went back to the beginning, chapter 1, numerous times for the year, and as soon as I got to chapter 10, I was completely lost. So I decided towards the final exams, because you have to pass Greek to be able to do this kind of work, although I've discovered Google can rescue you from all sorts of things, that I would hedge my bets and learn John chapters 1 to 5 like a play. So I could see Greek and read English. Now, I've forgotten it all now, but at that time, if you gave me any line from John, John, John chapters 1 to 5, I could give it you back in English. Very impressive. Chapter 6, verse 1, completely lost. And the miracle was that I was very shy of getting an A for that particular exam. My professor just couldn't understand the miracle that had taken place. Because as far as she was concerned, that word just never sank into my mind. So we meet here this morning in the name of a mystery, the Word made flesh. And John is a particular lover of mystery. We should really have 44 Gospels, not just four, because how could you ever put your arms around the great claim that we have as Christians, that God came to us in human form, this great mystery of the incarnation. So how might we let that word start to sink in? And it's an important question because 
The world needs people who are willing to lean into mystery. One of the great challenges of this constant news cycle that we live in, the constant ability to say stuff, is that there's so much apparent certainty about stuff. So many certain claims made about the world we live in. And I think one of the great gifts of our tradition, our our little corner of Christianity, is that we seek to embrace, to lean into, to sink into mystery. In other words, we know that we don't have all the answers. One of uh, our professors at Divinity School, she was also an Episcopal priest, still an Episcopal priest. She now lives in England, but she served a small parish um, uh, in the in the suburban part of Boston, Massachusetts, and a parishioner to be came up to speak to her after the service. I think really with this sort of glint in his eye and said, "Oh, you're going to love me here. I've got lots of questions." And she looked him straight in the eye and said, "I've got a lot more." <laughs> but she meant it. That this tradition is a way into this of stepping into this mystery of of following this way of God incarnate that seeks to explore endlessly for a lifetime the mystery of Christ. But not just to be neutral, to somehow have also a a personalized or maybe even intellectual exploration of theology. But for us to fulfill the mission of the church, to reconcile the world to God, to be like Isaiah's image of the messenger of God, How beautiful are the feet of him, of the messenger who brings good news to his people. I'd love it, actually, if just one person in public life stood up here and said, I've got some good news. Pure good news. No strings attached. Well, for the people of ancient Israel, the last person you wanted to see generation after generation was the messenger. The messenger would be the person who had come from the front line of battle. And typically, they'd arrive with bad news. Well, folks, it's no surprise we've been invaded again. It's no surprise we've been defeated. And one of the things that is, was so important for me to realize as I began to study how the Bible was written is that so much of it is written from the perspective of people who have been defeated who have had to reconcile themselves to the challenge that somehow the God that had promised them a land and to be a people and prosperity who had reached out to them had also been the God in their eyes who who in a way had managed to be defeated. That wonderful psalm, how the people lamented that their captors asked them to go and sing a song by the, the rivers of Babylon. Yet how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? How can we find words of hope in a context of loss and confusion? That is the challenge for Christians in this Christmas season. If we are to proclaim that Christ has come, light into the world, then we have to be prepared somehow to navigate that mystery, to step into it, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of of a world that also has plenty of confusion to be going on with. But sometimes we need to get out of our 
bubble to get a good perspective on our lives. And a couple of years ago, my family and I got out of our bubble, which at that time was in Southern California. We went and spent a couple of months uh, for my sabbatical in Tanzania. Now, the American church, we don't typically, typically have that issue here at All Saints. We were bursting at the seams last night. A lot of churches are contemplating the future and thinking, well, what are we going to be? What will become of us in this 21st century when people are more inclined to go to Starbucks than communion? And so we've got a church that's in many ways filling up with anxiety, that is clouding their sense of vision, clouding our sense of vision of what our mission is to be in the world. So when we went to Tanzania, I went with the bishop of that diocese, who's an ambitious man. It's the largest diocese, I think, in the Anglican communion. He has over 350 parishes, and each parish has at least two, maybe three churches. And he was going to visit every one of his parishes in the first year of his episcopate. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll go and see what this is like. And I went with him. And we got into the Jeep where he picked us up at the University of Tanzania uh, in Dodoma. And I said, well, I better just uh, call my wife, Monica, and let her know what time we'd be back, 7.30 in the morning. Let's see, maybe, you know, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So we're probably about 9 or 10 at night. We're visiting a couple of parishes. Well, the roads aren't fantastic in some parts of Tanzania. But one thing I've discovered is that if a preacher preaches for less than 45 minutes, the congregation takes it as an affront. So don't worry, I won't be going there this morning. (laughs) And if the service doesn't last for a good three hours, then the people haven't got what they came for. But the most telling moment that, that gave me a sense of perspective of what it means to be the messenger of good news was when the parochial report which we send to our national church here, which is a lot of numbers on a page. The procure report was read out in that parish in Tanzania, and it was two items long. They said, Bishop, here's what matters to us this year. People don't have enough water, and we're facing conflict over land. End of report. And I thought to myself, boy, we have first world problems. We're anxious because they're heading off to the Methodists. But they're anxious about having water to drink and food to eat. Yet if any of you have traveled to other parts of the world and and seen the beautiful global communion we're part of, you'll know when I say that the people there just embodied joy. There was a sense in which that word had sunk deep into them that in a way they didn't have to explain a mystery because they were living it. So that's my invitation to you. I don't have the answers, but I'm looking at the solutions, the incarnate solutions, God dwelling in you, that that word might sink into you, that you might embody that mystery and be a messenger of good news Wherever your life is called to offer good news this Christmas time and in the year ahead. For I think we know that we shouldn't be fooled by the scale of the task. Not because it is too great, but because God came as one human being. 
in a small, barely known town in Judea and changed everything. That's our story. I invite each of us to walk into it, trusting that the God who calls us is faithful. So may you know that rich blessing of light this Christmas time. And may you share it near and far. Amen.